Heavenly Father, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness that is new every morning. Your faithfulness, Lord, to your word and to your promises. Your faithfulness to your people to bless and to cause us to grow in the peace and knowledge of Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness and your love, having set your heart upon us to bring us to salvation and to bring us to completion in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we thank you for your faithful word as we open it up now. We pray that your spirit would guide us into your truths, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us as your church. That we who waver in this fallen world might find hope renewed and have the full assurance of our hope through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we ask that your truths would go forth, that they would accomplish your purposes in the hearts of those who hear, that you would speak to each one here exactly that which they need to hear from you, Lord. Give us our bread, our spiritual bread this morning. Feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And good morning again to all of you. Uh, so thankful to have all of you here. Uh, those of you that are from, uh, uh, from other places, uh, in, uh, from maybe outside of San Francisco and farther beyond, glad to have you with us. And uh, hope that you'll be encouraged by your worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you're welcome to take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 through 20 is where we are studying this morning. Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. Let me begin with just asking you a uh, kind of fun question. And the question is, what are some things that you can't live without? What are some things you can't live without? You can just think of the top two or three things right off the top of your head. Uh, what is it that you can't live without? I know for some of us, and many of us, uh, a lot, at the very top of the list would be some favorite food or drink. <laughs> you can't live without it. <clears throat> Now, I know others of us, it may be, we just take a look right next to us, to our right and to our left, and we'd say, it's that special loved one that is sitting right next to me, or f- close friends that we have in life, can't live without them. Of course, there's some of us who are very practical, and we might say that uh, we can't live without money, can't leave, live without sleep. But if there's one thing that you can't live without, that no one can live without, It is hope. You cannot live without hope. A person's expectation of what is to come in the future 
shapes how we live today in the present. We especially need hope when we encounter various difficulties and trials in our lives. When our marriage is struggling, when relationships hit rocky times, when our children rebel, when we lose our jobs, when health declines, when death looms, when fears rise. Those are all the various times that we especially need hope. We need to have an expectation. What do we expect that is going to come in the future will impact how we live right now in the midst of those difficulties and trials. For the Christian, hope is not just, though, just wishful thinking. Well, I hope things will get better. That's how the world uses hope. But for the Christian, as we learn in the scriptures, hope is, is a confident expectation. It's a confident expectation because we know things are certain in the future, not because we just wish it, but because God says it in his word. Our hope is, is based upon these promises that are found in God's word. Our hope is found in our faithful God and his faithful promises recorded for us. Sadly, however, even among the people of God, there are times when we lose hope. And those are times when we feel those emotions of despair, distress, anxiety, fear, because we lose hope. We've lost hope. We really forget the hope that we have. When the trials around us seem so insurmountable, we lose sight of the hope that God's word reveals. The way forward at those times seems unclear, and we start to doubt if we're on the right path. We start to doubt even God himself. Our faith begins to waver in those times and, and because we've lost hope. And that's what was happening with the Hebrew Christians, the recipients of this book. Facing persecution for their faith, many and some were considering forsaking Christ and returning to the Old Testament practices. In the previous passage, the author had given them his strongest warning yet of falling away from Christ. He told them to warn them that those that have tasted and experienced the, the blessings of salvation through participation in the life of Christ's church and then knowingly, volitionally, willfully fall away, turn away from Christ, the scripture says it is impossible to renew them to repentance. It's impossible. They will never, they, will, they have made their choice like the angels who chose. They're not going to ever turn back to the Lord. Like Judas Iscariot, like the Israel in the wilderness, such people profess faith, but in reality never truly possessed faith. Following such a sobering warning, the author now proceeds to offer encouragement to his readers. He says, I've warned you, but that's not you. 
I have a hope of better things for you. I'm confident of, of greater things for you. Though you are despairing and though you are wavering in your faith, you were tempted to fall, to fall away, but it's not too late. It's not too late. And so in our passage today, God calls these wavering Christians back to the full assurance of the hope that is theirs in Jesus Christ. These who have forgotten their hope is, are called back to remember the hope that you have in Jesus. And I hope that in this room, perhaps, that if there's anyone who is wavering in their faith, wrestling with the, with the daily trials and struggles of, and afflictions of life, that this passage would encourage you and remind you of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. We're going to look in this passage and we'll discover three points, three reasons for wavering Christians to have the full assurance of hope in Christ. Three reasons for wavering Christians to have full assurance of their hope in Jesus Christ. And so hope that encourages you. And if you're not wavering your faith, praise the Lord for that. When you write these truths down, and you may just tuck it away for a future time. Number one, we, reason number one for wavering Christians to have full assurance of their hope in Christ, we find in verses 9 through 12. And in verse 9 and 12, we learn we are to hope because God is not unjust. We are to hope because God is not unjust. And yes, I recognize it is a double negative, but uh, I just... I am a servant of the text. That is what it says. Hope because God is not unjust. Let's read verse 9 to 12 of chapter 6. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. And having ministered and still ministering to the saints, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author of Hebrews begins by assuring his readers here in verse 9. He wants to assure them he's a... Uh, he's given them hard truths, and now he wants to encourage them in responding to the hard truths. It's like after you discipline your children, you want to come by afterwards and immediately assure them that you love them still, and that you know and you're confident that they can do better with the Christ helping them. You know, you want to encourage them. That's what this author does. And he calls them, he does so by calling them first beloved, reminding them that, that God loves them. God has a love for them, manifest in his son. Beloved, he calls them. And he expresses his confidence that in this, in them, that better things await them. Yes, those who have complete, who have experienced the, all of salvation in, in the life of the, the church and yet reje- intentionally reject Christ will not be able to renew to repentance. That is true. But the author is convinced of better things for these Hebrew Christians. He's confident that they're not going to fall away. He's confident that they're going to continue to experience the, the blessings that do accompany salvation. It was described in earlier, even in verses four through, uh, four through eight, four through six, really. Having encouraged them, 
assuring them. Verse 10, the author then gives his reason for his confident assertion that better things are waiting you because, of course, it's because of God. Because God, he reminds them, first of all, because for God is not unjust. You know, when Christians go through difficult trials, and maybe or perhaps you've experienced the same thing, sometimes they begin to question God, especially if the trial is really difficult, especially if the trial continues for a lengthy period of time. They're tempted to question his plan for their lives. They're tempted to question his, his justice. And when we say justice, we don't use that term, but what we usually say is, God, it's not fair. That's questioning God's justice. They question his plan. Lord, why is this happening to me? Maybe we even think about, Lord, why is this happening? When we say, why is this happening to me? It's because we, we think that somehow because of the way I've lived or the, because of maybe something I've done, that somehow I don't deserve what is happening in my life. Don't you know, Lord, I'm a pastor. I've preached your word so faithfully. Lord, don't you know I've taught Sunday school? Lord, don't you know I, I've loved, the, the, loved the, the people, the, I've shown so much mercy. Lord, I, I've been faithful behind the scenes doing AV week in, week out. Why is this happening to me then? It's a question of, we're questioning God's justice. We're questioning whether he's fair to, to allow this thing to happen in my life. That somehow I think because of what, Lord, if you look at my life, you, you would know that I don't deserve this. Questions. These kind of doubts of God's justice come whenever in, through, in the times of difficulties. I know uh, early on and um, for many years, even my own self, my own life, wrestling with uh, infertility, there are moments like that. Perhaps for you, it's, it may be that, or perhaps it's singleness. Perhaps it's some health issue. Perhaps it's related to a job. Why, am I, why can't I find a job? So why, I'm still, why am I still unemployed? Why do I still have these difficulties in my relationships? All these things. And the question really becomes, Lord, Lord maybe we, we know God's good, but perhaps he's forgotten. Beloved, God hasn't forgotten you. God is not unjust so as to forget you. He does not forget you and what you've done. He remembers your, your righteous works and your loving deeds. He knows how you've lived. He knows how you've served in his church. He knows how you minister in the body of Christ. He knows all these things because the body of Christ is his and he is God. When you serve the church, you, you're serving Christ and who is the head of the church. God knows. God does not forget. God is not unjust to forget you in your trials. And since that is the case, the author then encourages his readers to continue being diligent in your service. Verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence in your service, that is, just in ministering to in their ministry in the past as well as their ministry currently, to show that same diligence so, that, so as to realize the full assurance of the hope until the end. 
That they are to continue being diligent in their service is the exhortation. To continue serving, to continue. Don't forsake Christ and his church. And when you are continuing to be diligent in your ministry to the saints and ministry in the body of Christ, what happens as a result is that if that somehow it helps you to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. One gains a full assurance of hope as you serve in the body of Christ. You gain this assurance not because it's, it's kind of something that you earn or it's like salvation, but it's an, it is the result of an encouragement that as you serve the body, you realize that God is, as you do the works that God calls you to do in the life of the church, that you start understand that that's God's work in me. You start to be reminded Every time we serve in, we, in the body, we see God at work in our lives. Every time I, I preach here, or every time you may teach a Sunday school, every time you might do whatever you do in the body of Christ, we should remember that this is something that God is working in my life to do. God is at work in me. As we learned last week, remember, those who are spiritually immature are in danger of falling away. Because they're not growing in their faith, they're not growing. Uh, they, they are also consequently not growing in their service to Christ. And those who are spiritually uninvolved in the life of the church, those who somehow don't fellowship with the saints, those who don't use their gifts for the building of the body, become, get in that place where they become in danger of, of falling away. You see, their failure to serve is sometimes simply because of unbelief. But as verse 12 reminds us, reminds the readers, the failure to serve is sometimes because of laziness. It says they're sluggish. That word means is sometimes translated lazy. Used back in verse 11 of chapter 5 to translate dull and dull of hearing. And so as you face trials, remember that, that God is not unjust. God's fair. He, he loves you. He loves you. He, he has plans for you. And he's at work in your life. He's working all things for your good, Romans 8, 28, right? He remembers you. He sees you. Therefore, don't fall away, but instead keep on diligently serving him. For in so doing, you'll realize the full assurance of hope. You'll realize that as you serve, God is at work in me. Your service is the reminder to you that your faith is real. We looked at this last week, but Ephesians 2.10, where we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. When we serve, when we do the things that God calls to do, the good works in our lives, it's an encouragement that this is God at work in, my, in me. This is why God saved me, that I might do these good deeds. It's evidence of Christ in me. Another passage that we, which states similar, we read in our call to worship, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not in, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out this salvation that you have, for it is God who has at work in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you work out your salvation, when you uh, allow salvation to manifest in the, the deeds and the, and the words that God calls us to do, it's, it's evidence that God's at work in us. And God is at work in, our, in us all the time to will, to desire, and then to work, that is to do God's good will. So, let us hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ. We can hope because God is not unjust. God's not unfair. God is loving. And he is, and he's, in fact, he's given us, allowed us to have these trials so that even in the midst of them, as we continue serving and worshiping him, we start to see, we see the evidence that God is at work in us, that God is present with us. Now, secondly, we have another reason for why, for wavering Christians to have to find their full assurance of hope in Christ is in verse 13 to 18. We hope because God does not lie. We hope because God doesn't lie. Verse 13 to 18, we'll read this, long, uh, this longer section. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. See again in verse, at the end of verse 18, this emphasis on hope here. Not only do you want to realize your hope, now he encourages us to take hold of that hope. So it's really, but it's essentially all saying the same thing. Hold on to that hope. Don't lose your, this hope that you have in Christ. Now, all of this that we just read in verse 13 to 18 is a, uh, maybe familiar to you. It's, it talks about Abraham and God's promise to Abraham. And we remember that this book is written to a, a Jewish background audience. And as soon as they mention the mention of Abraham here, there's a whole backstory that would come to the Jewish mind. But for many of us who are New Testament uh, Christians, uh, Gentiles, of uh, Gentile background, maybe the stories about Abraham don't necessarily come to our mind first thing. However, if you've been studying, if you know your Bible well, uh, they should come to mind. But nevertheless, I want to re- kind of recount that story for us so that you would grasp the, the background and when we talk about God's promise to Abraham. These promises that are mentioned here in verse uh, that were first mentioned in verse 12, are founded upon these promises that are made to Abraham, a man named Abraham, who was first, first known as Abram. It is in back in Genesis chapter 12, it goes all the way back to Genesis 12, where God found this, uh, chose this man named Abram, who lived in Ur of Chaldee, um, and God there made a covenant with this man named Abram, later changed to Abraham. And he basically gave him a threefold promise, a promise of a land that he would show to him. He told him to leave this place, and I will lead you to a land that I'm going to give to you. There's a promise of a, of a great nation or great people uh, that would come from his descendants, the second promise. And thirdly, a promise of a blessing, 
a blessing for him, but also a blessing that through him would be, result in the blessings upon the families of the earth. That's a, that's a huge thing. What a great impact this man's life would have that he, God would bless him in such a way that he would bless all the families of the earth. This threefold promise is sometimes summarized for us in what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Called the Abrahamic covenant. And so all this comes to mind to the Jewish uh, recipients when they hear this. And when you remember, you, if you know your story, when God made the promise to Abraham of this uh, and told him to leave you know, and to go to a new place, Abraham was not a young man. He was already 75 years old. How many of you at 75 years old want to sell everything you have and move somewhere else? No, I don't even want to do it. I'm 50, okay? So don't ask me to do it at 75. But Lord, if you do, I will go, okay? Got to be a good example. <laughs> but he was 75 years old, and he was, and he was not only that, he was married to a wife named Sarah, and they had no children. They had no children. And so God, God promised to give them a, a great nation, a great people. And over the years, God would reiterate his covenant promises to Abraham in different ways. And yet Abraham remained childless. Until at the age of 100, he and Sarah gave birth to their son Isaac. And then it was in Isaac that God would bring about the fulfillment of his, his promises to Abraham. And then in, in the, with that joy comes chapter 22 of Genesis. In that faithful chapter, Genesis 22, as Isaac grew up, God tested Abraham by calling him to take his only son, bring him to the, the certain mountain, and offer him there as a sacrifice to God. Mind you, it was a test. And Abraham, what did he do? God had given him this son, his only son, his precious son, his beloved son, the son in whom God had promised to give him, God promised to multiply his seed like the stars in the sand. And now he asked him to sacrifice him. And of course, that, that was, he would ask sacrifice because among the, the Canaanite religions in that days, it was very common for people to offer human sacrifices as a, to appease their gods. And so that was, a, that was the form of the test. But Abraham obeyed, as you know the story, believing that still in God's promise and somehow believing that God would raise his son from the dead. And as he was, just as he was about to strike the blow, the, the, the blood, the blow that would sack, kill his son, God stopped him and provided a substitute in place of his son. And then there was there, it was at that moment that we read in Genesis 22 that God would reiterate his promise once again to Abraham. In Genesis 22, 16 to 18, we read this. And God said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. 
See the reiteration of the, those uh, aspects of the Abrahamic covenant in this text? It is this reiterated promise that is referred to us, finally, as we go back to, to our text in chapter 6 of Hebrews, that is this, it is this promise that is provided as an encouragement to the reader. The author wants them to understand the, the irrevocable nature, irrevocable nature of God's promise. And I know as Bible-believing church, we, we, know, we already believe this, right? We know that if God says it, that... Oh, you guys don't know that? If God says it, that... Oh, man. Okay, we're going to work on this. Uh, hopefully the second service will be... If God says it, God settles it, right? I, you know, I need to do, take a lesson. Pastor Sandy used to say that a lot, all the time. I remember. Uh, I haven't said it in a while, I know. Okay, so that's for you new, you new folks out there. Remember that. God says it, that settles it. It's God's word, right? That's, that's what it says. I know we, we believe that. And I know you believe that truth anyways, but if you don't know the phrase. But verse 13, and, that, and that's, that's so. But here, in verse 13, Hebrews, Hebrews points out that God made a vow to keep his promise. Not only did he make a promise that he did in Genesis, but he, in Genesis 22, he made a vow to keep his promise. It's as if his word wasn't already enough. God makes an oath to keep his promise, a vow where he swears by himself. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. We read here that when men make oaths or vows, they usually do so by one greater than themselves, right? I don't know when was the last time you had to make a, make a vow or an oath. When, when we do, we usually do uh, on the... Uh, we swear by something greater, usually by God. I, I swear to God, or I swear on the Holy Bible, or I swear by the sun and the moon and the stars. Since no one is greater than God, God swore by himself. When men make, a, make oaths, it, it's done as a confirmation that what they're saying is true. I swear this is true. I swear this happened. I swear, I swear on my life that this took place. And usually when we swear that way, especially in, court, in our courtroom, courtrooms, that, that's enough to hold up in a court of law, right? It settles every dispute even in, um, among mankind. So God uses this practice here of man in showing mankind the certainty of his promises. It was enough that he just said it, but then he also vowed it. He swore it. He vowed it with an oath. And so it is with two unchangeable things. These two things are God's promise and God's oath to keep his promise. God's people can be assured of their hope. They can be assured. And that is because, and this is because God doesn't lie. The promise that God makes you, you can guarantee will come to pass because God does not lie. In fact, it's not, not that God does not lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. He is the God of truth. His word is truth in John 17, 17. He cannot promise anything that is not true, and he does not ever break his oath when he makes it. And so it's because of this certainty of God's promise that all those who have taken refuge in him are encouraged to take hold of the, the hope that is set before us. 
These words that he promises here, as long as we we look back to the book, we can always find his promises, and we can know they're sure because God does not lie. So in the midst of your trials, yes, in our weakness, we doubt. In our weakness, our faith wavers. You just read the book of Psalms, and you'll see the, the reality of this among the worshipers of God who are living life in a fallen world. There are times that why, God, have you forgotten me? In the midst of the trials, you can take hold then of the hope that God is seeking to bless you because he has promised to do so. We can hope, have the hope of God's promise that, oh, this trial, it's, it's not meant to destroy me. It's meant to build me up. It's meant, it's meant to increase in me a, 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 a perseverance of faith. It's a, really, it's a, this is not a curse. This is a blessing. God recently provided a wonderful reminder to me of this truth. I mentioned it last week in, uh, in our service and in our prayer about Pastor Wayman Lee. And uh, if you get his prayer letter, you should read it. It was the last prayer letter. It's also, I think he's put it up on Facebook posts. Now you, if you don't know, he was uh, recently diagnosed with a, a rare blood cancer, rare form of blood cancer. He's currently undergoing a six-month intensive treatment program. And, uh, and it's definitely, it's, it's really shaking him up. It's, it's uh, something that's ha- took so suddenly. It will, it's changing, it has changed his his life and it's change going to it's it's well it's impacting it's impacting his ministry but i was in reading his letter i was encouraged this that this is really not caused this trial has not caused his faith to waver but instead his faith has, is strengthened he sees god's plan more clearly and as he, I want to read for you what he wrote in his prayer letter. He wrote this as he's, he's in response to having read that um, GI, oh no, GI, uh, a book, a recent book about don't waste your cancer, I think it was one of those books. He says this, our focus should not be on the cancer or ourselves, but on God. God is using the cancer to remind us of his grace in our lives and the hope that we have in Christ. He's using it to remind us that our life on earth and the suffering we experience is brief compared to the glory that we will experience throughout eternity in heaven. That's an example of the, the countless number of saints of God who have experienced trials like this, and instead of seeing it as a curse, have con- grown to see it as a blessing, and they because of their hope that they have in Christ. The believer hopes because God does not lie. Because his words that he promises are true. He has promised to bless you. That's a, a continue, he has promised, he's fulfilling even the Abrahamic covenant in you. That through Abraham's seed, you are experiencing the blessing that goes to all the families of the earth. That is through Christ. And in hope, we can look for his blessings in our trials. We have hope because God does not lie. Last and finally, third and final point, third reminder for us to have hope. Hope because God's Son is your anchor. Hope because God's Son is your anchor. 
We find this in the last two verses of our passage, verse 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There you'll notice at the end, he mentions again the, the Jesus' priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. He's coming back full circle, essentially, to the beginnings of his mention of Christ being an order of Melchizedek all the way back in chapter 5, verse 6. He's returning to that at this point. But just before going back to that point, he wants to remind the, these saints that they, they, their faith is wavering. He reminds that they have a hope as an anchor of their soul. He draws a picture, basically. It's a, it's a figure of speech, a picture of, from nautical term of an anchor. It's, he's describing, and it just tells us, he talks about hope as an anchor of the soul. It describes the nature of our hope. You know, an anchor, what an anchor is, uh, an anchor basically is something that's part of a ship that helps to keep it in the same area. <laughs> it reminded me of back in the days when I, my, I would go fishing with my uncle and my dad, and we'd have this little small little boat, and uh, whenever we go out to, to, you know, to go fishing in this boat, and the water wouldn't be too deep, what my uncle would do is he'd always just go, he wouldn't bring it, he didn't have his own anchor, I couldn't afford it or something, I don't know, but what he would do is he would go find this big giant rock. You know, whatever, he's just on the beach, look for the largest rock you can find, and then he would bring that, and he'd tie a rope around it, and that he would throw that over the side. I think, yeah, and that worked. Just a big, heavy rock that would keep us in that place. It's a heavy rock. Anyways, hope is like an anchor. So you don't get carried away by the wind and waves, or even worse, it keeps the ship from crashing into rocks. And and this analogy is important in our life because the trials that happen to us in our our life are threats to our lives, threats to our souls. They threat to to dash our souls upon the rocks. They, They threat to carry us out away from Christ. But in Christ, we have hope as an anchor of our soul. Hope anchors us in Christ. Our hope keeps us steady in the face of the winds and waves of life. Our hope is sure and steadfast. It is stable. We have this anchor in the storm because we have hope. This hope is further described here as one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So this it's kind of strange. You don't think of an anchor entering into the hope that is an anchor entering into a veil. But what is that about? Well, again, this is all Hebrew imagery. The veil is a reference to the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Remember, the most holy place was, where, was the place that contained the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat that covered it. And between the mercy seat there uh, traditionally, God's presence dwelt. The veil divided that most holy place from the holy place. 
the holy place within where no one else could go into uh, except the priest once, a day, uh, once uh, twice a day. And, in that, and even then, only priests could go in there. But only the most holy place, be through beyond the veil, only the high priest could go once a year, right? And we've mentioned this before on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for, their, for the sins of the nation and for themselves. But our hope has gone through the veil, which enters within the veil. It's gone past the veil. It has gone past the veil into the very presence of God where Jesus has entered as a former. So Jesus has gone there, and our hope has gone there. Jesus, as our high priest, has entered within the veil. But we're not really no longer talking about the veil of the temple. But here we're talking about the, where Jesus has gone. is He's gone into the veil, through the veil of God's presence in heaven. The temple and the tabernacle are really just um, material representations of the realities in heaven. So just like an anchor tethers a ship to a certain place, our hope in Christ anchors us to the presence of God in heaven. Our anchor doesn't go down. Our anchor goes up. Our anchor goes up. It's, if, you could, you know, if you could picture, it's like you're, there's a you know, rope tied around you, and it's, and it's all going up, and it's, its end is in heaven because we're anchored in heaven because that's where Christ has gone through the veil. No matter what happens here on earth, we have that anchor, that anchor that holds us to the presence of God in heaven, holds us sure and steadfast, and though the winds and waves buffet us, though the threats of of being dashed upon the rocks of trials in our life, they they threaten to tear our lives apart, we have an anchor in heaven where Christ has gone before us. We have access to God's throne always. We have that hope that is there always. And this is not only possible because of Jesus, God's Son. It's only God's Son that could enter into that presence. We've covered that in a previous text. Having sacrificed his life as a substitute for us. And he has prepared a way into that place. We have, are that anchor is a... It, in, through Christ is our hope that one day we will be there too. No matter what happens here, we have the hope that we'll be there as well. And all the things that bother us now will just fade into fade with glory. Our hope is in God's Son. I love what Jesus promises his disciples. He gives them this kind of hope on the night in which he was betrayed. In John 14, he prepares his disciples and he gives them this promise. He says, he knows that he's going to leave. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. You got tr- trials are going to come. You're not troubled now. They will be troubled in some place in your life. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way 
where I'm going. Jesus, as God's son, has gone to the Father to prepare a place for us, for you and me. And as he promised, he will come again and receive you to himself. And there in heaven with the Father and his Son, we'll be eternally secure and in peace. And so having God's Son as the anchor of our soul, being the source of the anchor of our soul, is reason for us to have hope because God's Son is forever welcome in God's presence. God's Son will never be turned away, will never be sent away from God's presence. And as long as we believed in Christ and God's Son continues to sit at the right hand of God the Father, we know we have a hope that is sure and steadfast. And therefore we can hope in Him. As we wrap up then, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 to 20, encourages Christians wavering in their faith with the full assurance of their hope in Christ. Though the winds and waves of life buffet us and threaten to wash our soul's ship against the rocks, destroy us, we can hope because we have an anchor for our soul in Christ. God is not unjust to forget us, nor does God lie that he would keep his promise, that he would not keep his promise to us. God's Son has gone before us and entered through the veil into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And there He sits as our sure and steady anchor. And so therefore, let us be diligent to hold fast to Jesus, to not fall away, to not uh, forsake Him, but to continue to serve and worship Him in His church. Let's, uh, I'll leave you three questions just for your discussions or personal meditation this week. How is your hope in Christ currently? What, what's the status of your hope in Christ? What are you, how are you hoping Christ? Talk about hope. Hope is what impacts how you live today. What are you hoping for? How does it reflect in your daily life? Secondly, when you encounter trials, hopefully you can evaluate what are some thoughts that go through your mind that may reflect doubt in God's character. And then thirdly, can you think of a time where serving the saints has strengthened your hope in the Lord? And hopefully you'll see that. Yeah, I remember that time. I really felt that God was using me at that point. And God was, God was glorified that. And that's evidence for you. And that's a reminder of your past service that may be encouraged for you to continue diligently serving the Lord who called us and saved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the, the anchor of our soul. He who is sure and steady is the one in whom has prepared the way for us. And as long as he is there at your right hand, Father, we thank and praise you that we have a hope, an assurance, full assurance of this hope that the promises you have made to us will come to pass. Because you are just, because you do not lie, and because God's Son is there at your side. And our hope and faith are in him. Thank you, Lord, for loving us to, enough to send your son 
to die for our sins. Lord, that upon raising and ascending to your right hand, he continues to intercede for our, on our behalf. Lord, may you encourage your saints to not waver, but to continue to hold on to Jesus Christ in hope. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.